On the 31st of October 2021, world leaders converged on Glasgow for the UN Climate Change Conference, colloquially known as COP26. Here it is hoped that an agreement can be reached to help avert the worst effects of the climate crisis. However, given the history of soft targets and inaction on climate change, there is an air of skepticism that COP26 will live up to the moment. As awareness of the climate emergency grows, more people seem willing to take actions that push the boundaries of political protest in liberal democracies. In the UK, groups like Extinction Rebellion and Insulate UK have taken to disrupting roads, public transport, and business. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, Season 2. And today, we'll give you the city view on the climate emergency and civil disobedience. And we're back. Welcome to the second series of the City Politics Podcast. I'm joined in the studio by the brains of the operation, Constantine Vossing. Constantine, welcome back to the podcast, gang. It's good to be back. Thank you. Yeah, it is good to be back. I feel like I never left. And we're starting season two uh, very strong with two world-leading experts in civil disobedience. Joining us all the way from Bloomington, Indiana, we have Bill Scheuermann, the Rudy Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Bill's primary research is in modern political thought, German political thought, democratic theory, legal theory, and international political theory. He is the author of Civil Disobedience from Polity Press and the editor of the Cambridge Companion to Civil Disobedience. Welcome to the show, Bill. Very happy to be here. Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure. We also have Guy Acheson, lecturer in politics and international studies at the University of Loughborough. Guy's research interests are in political resistance, human rights, democratic theory, and migration. You should check out his new article, Fragility is Strength, The Ethics and Politics of Hunger Strikes in the Journal of Political Philosophy. Welcome to the show, Guy. Hi, David. Good to be here. It is also an absolute delight to have you join us as well. And we have a lot to talk about today because we're talking about climate change and civil disobedience. But before we get into our conversation, we're going to start off with our first segment. On the City Politics Podcast, we'd like to start off with a little little segment we call Explain It Like I'm Five, because I am a noted dummy who doesn't understand a lot of things, and I need to have things explained to me in very clear and simple terms, even when they're complex ideas. Uh, So let's start off with an easy question. And I'm going to throw this to Guy first, I think. What is climate justice? What are we talking about? Climate justice is an approach that looks at the social justice dimension of climate change. So not just about how do we reduce emissions or kind of scientific questions, but who pays the costs for adapting to climate change and mitigating it? And which are the groups who have to pay the cost and who gets to decide how that works in practice? So, you know, one plausible view is that the people who've contributed most historically to carbon dioxide emissions should pay the greatest costs. Powerful states like the UK, Britain, other European states. And as well as the question of who pays the costs, There's also questions around who participates in decision-making around climate change. So there's a critique of COP26 that is unrepresentative, including of the people who are most badly affected by climate change. So any kind of social justice question to do with how we respond to climate change would fall under that umbrella, I would say. Okay, that is a really helpful answer, because when we talk about climate change, we often get the impression that it is sort of a force of nature, 
but the politics beneath this, well, I mean, it is quite literally a force of nature, I guess, but there is a political element to it, and that is the topic of climate justice. Uh, let's turn to Bill for our second question. Bill, what is civil disobedience? I think I can answer that pretty quickly. Civil disobedience refers to a very specific type of politically motivated lawbreaking. Historically, this politically motivated lawbreaking has had to be nonviolent. It's had to be conscientious in some sense of the term. So there's some sort of moral reason behind it, typically. It's civil. Uh, that's meant a lot of different things. It may just mean that people are being public-minded. Uh, and also, um, it has to be public. And then I'd say last but not least, uh, and this is going to sound weird to a lot of listeners, but I think this is crucial, it has to show what people have called fidelity to law, which, um, or as Martin Luther King put it, you have to show some sort of respect for the law, which is not the same thing as saying, of course, respect for existing law. But the, the interesting thing about civil disobedience in a way is you break the law, but you do this as a way of actually showing that you want a, a different or better legal order. Thanks. That is a really effective summary, Bill. It clears up what civil disobedience is because, you know, as I was saying in, in, in the green room before we started recording, civil disobedience seems to occupy something of a gray area between ordinary political action and more militant action. And it's interesting to unpick what exactly this means and what conditions attach to it. Now, I'm looking forward to talking about this as it relates to the politics of climate change. But before we do that, I'm afraid I have to hand over our guests to Constantine and the crystal ball. Uh, Constantine, would you like to take it away? I would very much. You might as well call me the resident torturer in this uh, room because I'm the one who's asking the tough questions to which you guys can only answer yes or no. Uh, but I promise we'll unpack it all in all details and complexities of every one of these questions afterwards. But for now, I would ask you to just answer yes or no. And uh, let's start uh, with Guy. He's going to be the first one of the first five questions, and then we switch the order around. So both of you get the the benefit of hindsight, uh, at least to some extent. Uh, so there's 10 questions, 10 yes or no answers. Let's look into the crystal ball. All right, question number one. Is catastrophic climate change still avertible? Guy, yes or no? Yes. William, yes or no? I'm not a scientist, but I hope so. So yes, probably. I, I'm not very good with yes or no. But... <laughs> neither, neither one of us is. Neither right. one of us. Question number two. Will COP26 be regarded as a turning point in the struggle with the climate emergency? Guy, yes or no? Oh, goodness. No, it doesn't look like it. William. Oh, boy. I guess I agree with Guy again. No. Thank you. Question number three. Is it true that environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening? Guy. Yeah, that sounds... I saw that quote the other day. I'm going to go with yes. William. Me too, yes. Uh, question number four. Will climate change kill neoliberal capitalism? Guy. Yes. William. No. Question number five. Will civil disobedience be necessary to ensure action against climate change? Guy. Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. And two emphatic yeses. All right, let's switch the order around. Uh, William, mm -hmm. you go first on question number six. Will people be compelled to engage in uncivil disobedience to avert climate change? William? Yes, potentially. Guy? Yes, it looks like it. Question number seven, William. Will we see the emergence of anti-climate change terrorism? Yes. I, I don't have a, a you know, crystal ball, though, guys. 
These are kind of crystal ball questions. Are those the ones you always ask? Yeah. Oh, we'll look at you to the future. So yeah. yeah. All right, you say yes, is that right? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Guy. On current trends, yes. Question number eight, William. Do people in the global north, also known as the developed world, have an obligation to take greater risks, such as imprisonment, to mitigate the climate crisis? Yes or no? Yes. Guy. Yes. Question number nine. Is the climate crisis distinct from other forms of injustice, William? Yeah, yes. Guy. Yes, in some ways, yes. Will mitigating the effects of climate change require greater global equality, William? Yes, probably. Right. I think so, yes. <laughs> Sorry, it's not very argumentative, but I have to be truthful. And now is the thank you so much for, you know, thank you so much for letting me torture you. And now we go into the details. Thank you so much. The first thing that I sort of noticed from the answer to the question is that there is an interesting mixture of optimism and pessimism with both of you. Uh, so both of you believe that the climate crisis or catastrophic climate change at least can be averted with the asterisks is that no one in this podcast is a climate scientist. Uh, but this is something where we're not past the point of no return. But there is a distinct lack of faith in the mainstream political solutions to climate change, right? There's not a lot of hope that COP26 is going to produce anything uh, that will be a meaningful contribution to ameliorating or mitigating catastrophic climate change, which I think, I think it's interesting uh, that we're sort of hopeful that there can be an, a solution, but the solution is not forthcoming. I mean, I why is that? Why do we think that COP26 isn't going to produce anything meaningful? I wouldn't want to write it off completely. Um, I'm sure there will be some beneficial agreements that are made, but in the past, when people have agreed things, they just have carried on as usual without implementing them. I mean, one thing that was in the headlines recently was an agreement to stop deforestation by 2030. And my re immediate response to that was, well, why not now? Let's, you know, let's stop deforestation now. Let's do that because that's the urgency of it. But leaving that aside, there was other agreements about deforestation. Um, there was one in 2014, for example, and since then deforestation has increased. So often not only do these agreements not get implemented, but things sometimes get worse. And the problem is the governments who are making these decisions, they kind of seem to have made the calculation that it's worth their while sounding like they care about the climate crisis, but it doesn't yet seem to be worth their while, at least from their perspective, actually doing something and taking meaningful action or, you know, asking their citizens to make the kinds of contributions or sacrifices that will be necessary. So I'm not massively hopeful about there being a major breakthrough on climate change. I mean, when you look at Boris Johnson, our own prime minister, for example, he is talking about taking action on climate change at the same time he is prepared for new sort of burning fossil fuels like never before. Um, there's many you know, ways in which his actions fall short of his rhetoric, and that's the case with lots of other democratic leaders and political leaders, I guess. I just was reading the American climate scientist, Michael Mann, who in response to uh, Greta Thunberg, I think quite correctly, I'm paraphrasing, said it's not nothing what's happening. You know, and, and let's be honest, it's unrealistic in the universe we find ourselves in, and there's no other universe out there right now 
for the entire world to come together and then instantaneously solve this massive problem, you know? So if you look at it from that perspective, and if you also keep in mind that we've now had, uh, you know, I see this as a US citizen, of course, uh, not just as a US citizen, we just had four years of active anti uh, dealing with climate change policy. So there's something different going on. And however modest some of these measures are, they're not insignificant. You know, so some of these agreements, yes, they are their goals that have been set and we'll have to see if they are fulfilled, you know, but dealing with methane emissions and the various things that have been discussed. I mean, I do think they are meaningful. They're not as much as what we would like. Let's hope that they open the door to what we really need to happen. But let I, I, I also think, I mean, what Michael Mann said is also right in the sense, he said, you just, a sort of climate pessimism uh, which says nothing's going on. This is just, this is the kind of thing the fossil fuels industry celebrates. And I think he's right about that. You know, we don't want to be naive, um, but we do need a differentiated assessment of what we're, what we're seeing in Glasgow. Yeah, I think that that's a really well taken point that, you know, this was not even on the world politics agenda, say, 40 years ago, which is really not that long ago, right? The fact that we now have major international conferences addressing the climate crisis in which states are committing to change, even if the change is superficial, does seem to be at least a step in the right direction, even if we would like it to be a bigger stride. Uh, and I think one of the things that you just said, Bill, I think is really well taken, uh, realism in politics. Uh, and sort of, I think this is something that as a political philosopher I often struggle with, is the constraints of the real, right? And the tension that we have with what politics can accomplish and what we perhaps would hope politics could accomplish in an ideal world. And uh, that is a tension that I think runs through a lot of the climate debate, not just in the academy, but in the actual climate movement. But you know, does this mean that we need to limit what we want? Are we constrained by the real in a sort of like a straitjacket? At the um, same time, you guys are very optimistic, right, Will? You're very optimistic in a sense, because you both said, catastrophic climate change is still avertable. And that is the most fundamental question. So what I was thinking is in combination with your uh, skeptical view of um, you know, COP26 being the turning point, I was thinking, is this a case of um, optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect? Uh, how do you explain that? I'm just reading you know, um, secondhand information from the scientists and they're saying we can still avert the worst. At least most of them are saying this if we act, right? And so, you know, there's some scientific evidence that I'm following. And then the second point I just wanted to make a moment ago is yes, we would like a lot more, but we live on a planet where there are many people who deny the fact that there is, that there's a major problem to begin with, you know? So in light of that, um, I would, I, I just, these words, I, I had a teacher who once said to me, and I actually thought that was, it really irritated me, but I'm gonna repeat it. Optimism and pessimism are not scholarly categories, you know? And I think there's something to that. Um, we, have, we have to be differentiated and we have to see that there, there, you know, there is the potential at least for some progress here. And just on realism, if I could say, I mean, there's a difference between what the great C. Wright Mills called um, crackpot realism, which is a sort of narrow functional realism where you simply adjust yourself to fundamentally insane processes. You know, he's writing this in the context of the US Cold War um, versus what I would call, a, you know, an admirable realism, which recognizes that, yes, there are conflicting, con conflicting interests out there. Pluralism <laughs> raises all kinds of issues. And so I, I'd like to think that I'm not being a crackpot realist when I say, nor was Guy, I thought, you know, in, in terms of saying, you know, there, there are some 
potentially useful things happening here. I don't yeah. know if that's optimism. And one other thing that I saw was that China and India have both agreed to a net zero target. Although it's not until the second half of the 21st century as well, but there are steps being made in the right direction, I guess. It's only that, I mean, even on the most optimistic assumptions, I think I saw some calculations that, you know, even if all the pledges get met that have been made as things currently stand, we're still looking at about 2.7 degrees of warming by the end of the century. Um, which will mean, you know, so sort of four billion people having serious heat waves, many tens of millions of people in uninhabitable parts of the planet. I think so. Yeah, I mean, even if the even if the chance of averting it was zero point one percent, we would still be morally required to do something about it and take action. I guess, but yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be dismissive or poo-poo the kind of progress that's made there but it's just this kind of very strange disjuncture between what we know about the science and the steps we're taking I mean when COVID came about towards the beginning of last year and kind of we didn't say oh well we're going to we're going to lock things down in six months or we're going to lock things down in a year or we're going to kind of start a furlough scheme to pay people in two years time we said right we're going to do this now and that kind of was responsive to the urgency of the situation. And we're still at this kind of stage of dithering and kind of postponement, which we need to kind of shake ourselves out of, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting, the COVID comparison, because you know, one of the lessons, I think, of the pandemic is the state is still a very real actor, right? When the state wants to do something, uh, whether it's sort of lock down its citizens or direct a huge amount of resources into vaccine research, it is able to do so. Uh, but the other flip side of that has been the relatively poor response, I think, at the international level uh, to the pandemic and a, a lack of coordination around, say, uh, vaccine distributions globally, uh, which have been highly skewed towards the developed world. Uh, so perhaps, you know, one of the things that is a particular challenge when it comes to climate justice is the absence of a sort of strong global agency that is able to deal with it. Uh, we're stuck in a tragedy of the common situation, uh, which is a good segue into uh, sort of a, the next thing that I'd like to, to speak about. The comments that we've just had and your answer to the questions around uh, class struggle and neoliberal capitalism seem to suggest that there needs to be a more systemic change rather than a tinkering with uh, the system that already exists. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what sort of change are, are, are you thinking about uh, when it comes to sort of class struggle and uh, perhaps uh, one of the points of differentiation is about the future of neoliberal capitalism. Because, Bill, you seem to think that uh, it's here to stay. And I'm not going to lie. You know, a lot of people have said capitalism's dead over the years. But, you know, just like a zombie, it pops back up. Uh, so perhaps uh, you'd like to sort of explain why you think it's still going to be kicking around. Yeah, well, I think we, we'd have to talk a little bit about what we mean by neoliberal capitalism. So I was taking that very broadly. So I'm not talking about specific set of policies we associate, let's say, with um, New Labor or Ronald Reagan, for that matter. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a global order which remains, at least in many ways, or at least the major players remain, basically liberal capitalist regimes. 
And um, I would like to say that we need um, systemic change to that order in order to deal with the climate crisis and both of those things are gonna happen. Uh, but in the spirit, I hope again, not of crackpot realism, but of a viable kind of realism, I, I, that worries me. I, I think if we're gonna wait for, um, we need socialism or something, radical social democracy in order to deal with the climate change, we're all gonna be dead. I hate to say that, but I, I, I'm, that makes me very, you know, so, I mean, this is complicated. I mean, I do think we're going to need to have clearly much more state involvement in areas of the economy where there perhaps hasn't been. That's going to be crucial to dealing with climate change. But I, I'm not utterly convinced empirically that um, we can't have a more green form of capitalism. You know, I just don't, I mean, again, normatively, that's a different issue. I, I think we, we need a different social and economic order. Uh, I consider myself a left social democrat, but maybe there maybe there can be. There seems to be evidence we could be could move in that direction. So I, I, I think this gets also very complicated. Uh, Guy, same question. I agree that with Bill that there's no need to wait for capitalism to be replaced or overthrown to take action on the climate crisis. I can completely envisage effective action on the climate crisis being taken within. The parameters of a capitalist system so we shouldn't try and say well actually you know the only way we're going to solve this is we overthrow capitalism that's going to make it just a kind of goal that just firstly i think empirically yeah it's not it's not the case that we can't take effective action within the constraints of capitalism but i was addressing specifically the point about neoliberalism i think regardless of the climate crisis we're already seeing a kind of mutation of capitalism from kind of neoliberal capitalism that was very skeptical about the role of the state and in intervention. Um, I mean, in Britain, the Tories have put taxes up to the highest they've been since after the war. We've had massive state involvement in the economy. There seems to be a consensus emerging that the state can play more of a role in directing industrial um, policy and things like that in Britain, uh, in the US. And then obviously you've got to talk about the Green New Deal and things like that. But yeah, of course, if there, if there is going to be action, it's going to require a bigger role for the state. So we may see a continuation of this move away from neoliberalism. But yes, I'm not trying to suggest that we need to first overthrow capitalism if we're going to effectively deal with the climate crisis. I mean, I consider myself a socialist or a sort of, you know, social democrat too. So I would like to see a kind of... <laughs> More, more just system but I think you know there's a lot that can be done you know within the existing kind of economic political economic system there's a lot more than can be done than, than is being done and that should be done immediately. So let's talk uh, a bit more about what can be done and how we can accomplish it because that is um, I mean that's one of the major topics on uh, today's uh, recording. So we've talked about the government so far, and we've both um, revealed, uh, you, you both revealed yourselves to be left social democrats that, you know, that believe that the government needs to do something, not just in uh, terms of climate mitigation, but also in more fundamental political economic change, not just to deal with the climate crisis, but incidentally also solve a number of other problems then, you know, that uh, I suppose that that can be solved by that sort of political action by uh, the state. Um, but the topic for today's show is um, is civil disobedience. And that's decidedly 
uh, something that is not done by governments, that, uh, that comes out of society, that comes out of some form of grassroots action, which doesn't mean that it is not uh, not guided uh, by some form of leadership, but it is definitely not a, a state-run kind of thing. It's, a, it's a something that comes from below in one form or fashion. And here, interestingly, all of you agreed on all of the uh, disobedience questions. Uh, so, uh, but again, as David said before, there might be some sort of details in the motives for why you agree on them. But I wanted to start that out, actually, that debate about civil disobedience with an even more fundamental question, because we assume that, you know, there's lots of need for people to be disobedient or to engage in, in any other form of political action uh, to uh, accomplish uh, a sort of progress toward climate change mitigation. Um, but then, you know, there's also people sitting on the other side of the fence, uh, and uh, William's comment earlier on, uh, it reminded me of that, he said, you know, think of it, guys, there's so many people around the world that don't even believe that climate change is a problem that needs to be dealt with, and some of them actually are sort of violently, or at least sort of vigorously, not necessarily violently, but vigorously acting against that, uh, that, that belief. So long story short, or, you know, putting this all down to, you know, to one question, well, do you think that political action uh, demanding that more be done for climate change is as likely as political action of people who say don't do anything against climate change and you know you need to have other priorities and these people are all just crazy and there is no climate change you know is, is there going to be civil disobedience is there going to be sort of grassroots action from both of these points of view well again i don't i don't have a crystal ball but we can we can say something that we've there is something we've seen. I mean, there have been in the last couple of years very successful movements of people engaging in civil disobedience, including Extinction Rebellion. You know, whatever its flaws, they have put this on the political agenda. People are talking about it. You know, and that's happening all over the place. I just saw there were 250 protests this weekend all over the world. You know, again, I wish there were more, and I wish more people were doing this. Um, but, you know, we, that's going on, and that's been a hugely uh, fruitful thing. I would also say, and Guy and I may agree, disagree with about this, I also think they're going to, it's probably, if we don't act soon enough, uh, quickly enough, and there's certainly some evidence that might be the case, the, the case for more militant forms of protest, sabotage, for example, of, uh, you know, fossil fuel emitting gas pipelines. I mean, you know, the case for that becomes stronger. And then I think the issue really becomes for people who do that, um, they need to think about how they're going to build a public movement and not just be seen as criminals. And I think as they do so, they will have to start thinking uh, about the sorts of things that civil disobedience historically have thought about. You know, how do I communicate the right message to people? But some of those types of actions, I mean, you know, um, we can argue about this, but sabotage is generally not does, is not defined as falling under the rubric of civil disobedience. And um, I think that may be necessary if things continue to get worse. Now, I'm giving you a long answer, sorry. But the other side, I, I think you already have, you know, so for example, the, the yellow vest protests in France, I think they're very complicated. Um, but my understanding is, you know, to some extent, you could interpret that as sort of a, a rebellion against a kind of top-down neoliberal gas taxes, a, you know, a, a form, a way to deal with climate change, which does not deal with social justice, which basically stuck these truck drivers with the costs versus the people living in their fancy apartments, excuse me if I sound very populist here in Paris, who are engaging in what are called luxury emissions, right? So this is another thing in terms of what has to happen. 
I mean, if you're really concerned about climate justice and you don't want a backlash, I mean, we need, we need to make sure not only that we have policies that deal with it, but the policies are ones which are not going to generate a mass popular backlash by um, people who, frankly, are not the main source of the problem. Uh, and I think this is going to be the political battle, certainly in the United States, you know. I mean, so I live in a state which has a pretty substantial uh, coal sector. And, um, you know, we can talk a lot about this, but these folks are really worried, understandably. And, they're, and they're you can't just say to them, well, you know, your kid can go to college or move to California, right? I mean, there, have to, there really have to be very clear efforts to uh, take care of these people. You know, and that, that's what I would say a Green New Deal has to do. And I think people have thought about that. On the question of how militant protests can be, I mean, I guess another thing that I find really striking about our current political moment is that we can think about, well, are environmentalists going to become more militant? Are they going to use more aggressive means? But what's striking is just, again, given the urgency of the situation, given the threat we face, given the kind of catastrophic predictions, is just how little militancy there is, just how little, quote unquote, eco-terrorism we're seeing. I mean, we're talking about four billion people, like I say, being under heat waves, millions of people being in places that are uninhabitable, people dying of thirst and hunger. But we're not seeing large scale or even small scale really kind of aggressive militant protests we see occasionally sabotage of oil pipelines sabotage of fossil fuel infrastructure but again this falls mostly within the kind of property damage that as bill says can be included under some conceptions of civil disobedience and then there's the question of how effective it will be of course and there's a risk of kind of alienating people if one just simply says oh we need to take the most militant action and one thing that I think it's sometimes worth distinguishing that social movements and activists sometimes conflate is that there's a distinction between like militancy and radicalism it's not the case that because you're politically radical and you believe in you know replacing the capitalist system with something more green that you should necessarily have to adopt the most militant tactics the tactics you adopt should be the ones that are most effective for your political goals and i think yeah inevitably it will need to persuade people so they'll need to kind of work with people across the political spectrum including potentially people in political parties green parties as well and think about how to bring people with them i mean going back to bill's point again about the issue of climate denialism that's specifically i think that's definitely a big thing in the us kind of ex, you can but you can distinguish here between kind of explicit climate denialism like donald trump and the kind funded by the Koch brothers to great effect and then there's implicit climate denialism which is again most of us which is that we recognize at an intellectual level this thing is happening there is an emergency, we're about to fall off a cliff or we're falling off a cliff, but our actions aren't congruent with what our intellect recognises. And that's a kind of implicit form of denialism. And I've seen that distinction drawn somewhere. I can't remember who made it, but I thought it was very helpful because part of the challenge is, yeah, to combat this explicit denialism that is often linked to kind of right-wing and fascist movements, but also 
it's not simply to persuade people that climate change is happening. Many people now accept that it's happening. Um, certainly in Europe and large parts of the world, maybe in the US, I think it's probably slightly different to um, opinion elsewhere. But I think the, 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 the goal is, I guess, to move from this implicit denialism of accepting it's happening to, to what do we do about it, to kind of accepting that it's a problem, to acting on the problem, or to accepting that it's an issue, to making it the priority issue that we have to structure other policy goals around. So how you do that, I'm not entirely sure. I don't have any kind of special answers about how you do that, but I think it will require a broad range of different tactics. It will require party politics, civil disobedience, uncivil disobedience and sabotage, various forms of, of kind of political action as well. But I think, um, trying to understand what, what, what the nature of the problem is and, and how best to act politically is, is going to be an important part of it. Okay, those are both really interesting comments with a lot to unpack, but I want to hone in on one thing in particular because it reminded me of when I first became aware of environmental activism as a, as a young boy in Canada, uh, and it was regarding eco-terrorism in the Pacific Northwest, you know, specifically environmental activists putting caltrops on logging lanes going into old growth rainforest or uh, you know, putting sugar in the gas tanks of major trucking vehicles, basically making logging camps unable to operate. Mm -hmm. And this was something that you know, struck me as you know, justifiable, you know, so perhaps representing the direction of my thought even from a very young age. But I want to tease out the difference between militant action, uh, which a lot of people I think would consider this form of, you know, quote unquote, eco-terrorism and civil disobedience. I mean, where is this distinction? Because when I think about uh, attacks on property of this kind, I'm not sure how they count as being uncivil necessarily, especially if they're conducted within what Bill referred to a uh, fidelity to the law. If you are sort of willing to shut down a uh, logging camp through extra legal measures and, you know, suffer the consequences of getting caught. This seems to be in the sort of spectrum of civil disobedience, but I suspect that that is a minority opinion. And most people would view this as being outside the realm of civil disobedience. And I'm curious to know why. It's really interesting you began with this discussion about eco-terrorism. Um, and uh, it's interesting because if one goes and looks at the sorts of cases that are typically subsumed under that category, the number of them involving the possibility of harm to persons is tiny. I mean, you're talking about a handful. So yes, there have been swipes in trees and there were, you know, not the lot, this is one reason why I don't think this is acceptable. It's not the logging companies, excuse me, who pay the price. It's the poor guy out there with his chainsaw who risks his life, you know, who may not even want the job. That, that, there's an issue there, I think, right? Um, but the bottom line is we're really talking about property damage. And I think you're right. You know, property damage is not necessarily inconsistent with civil dis disobedience, even understood in a relatively old-fashioned way. You know, if you go back and you read these theorists of civil disobedience from the 60s, some of them basically say that. You know, this guy... Um, Marshall Cohen says, uh, destruction of some public property, if nobody's harmed, this can make an important symbolic statement. It can contribute to deliberation, you know? Um, you know so, that, so I think you're right about this. Now where things get more controversial, of course, is where the damage may result uh, in harm to people, right? And, or where one can make an argument along those lines. 
And that, that I think is a much more difficult matter, at least if one is committed to political nonviolence. But you're right. I mean, one of the interesting things about this is how um, the popular understanding and also the media just assume that any kind of property damage is violence. You know, this is what happened in the, in the U.S. last year with the Black Lives Matters protest, matter protest, right? I mean, so there was all this talk about violence in the streets. And again, it was overwhelmingly, we're talking about property damage. You know, even in some of the, the most explosive protests, places like Minneapolis or Portland, I mean, yes, store, you know, stores were, there was arson, and I don't want to condone that, right? But this is not the same thing necessarily, of course, as, as you know, firing a weapon at somebody. So um, I think you're right. Now, I also think this is a problem for climate activists because it's okay for us to sit here and say we need to delineate some forms of property damage from uh, violenced persons. But again, as Guy, I think, quite correctly was saying, we have to think about the consequences of these actions on the broader public and how they're going to be received. And that's where things get, I think, very difficult. I think militancy historically when people have talked about militancy you know we think about say Malcolm X and his um, rhetoric and the distinction there between the more mainstream civil rights movement of Martin Luther King they were prepared to sort of take up arms and they identified with kind of anti-colonial struggles so a lot of the kind of revolutionary militancy and the texts like Frantz Fanon that people refer to are perhaps associated with kind of 20th century anti-colonial struggles, I think. But again, when we see, talk, see the way in which this terms kind of violence, militancy and terrorism are used in the medium public debate, they're used in a very ideological way to kind of frame protest as threatening, as terroristic. And it's worth mentioning, I think, that in the UK, there's a bill that's currently going through Parliament. I forget the precise name, but it's something like the Police Protesting and Courts Bill, which is going to make it possible for the police to criminalise protest if it causes a public nuisance. And this was specifically named at Extinction Rebellion. Um, and among kind of right-wing commentators and think tanks, they've been very angry ever since the campaign, the successful campaign Bill mentioned in 2019 about blocking highways. And for them, this was a kind of form of disruption and uh, violence and terrorism. And it means that whereas previously, you know, the police could only ban protests if it was a very serious public disorder, very serious public disruption, even then it was quite over-inclusive. But now they're basically going to have powers to stop all but the most timid protests, really, all the most timid um, protests that don't inconvenience anyway, because protest, let's face it, is always going to involve some element of disruption or it's just going to be ignored. And, you know, the fact that people get irritated at that disruption, like the blocking of roads and stuff in itself isn't a reason to think that it's not working or that we should abandon it for once, because there's never going to be full consensus or support but behind these kind of protest tactics. Um, but yes, I think the kind of debate around more militant actions is interesting. I think, do, I do think it's going to happen. 
I do think there will be a kind of street-based movement against SUVs or something like that at some point within the next five to 10 years, unless we see kind of radical change, because I mean, you know, there's, 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 we can't, we can't continue having this com public conversation and then just seeing this kind of unlimited, uh, you, you know, luxury consumption. Um, I mean, the emissions from SUVs alone sort of offset any gains made by electric cars in the past few decades. So like this kind of, um, this kind of stuff, I think will inevitably happen and there's gonna be uh, kind of important conversations about that. And I think hopefully philosophers will be able to shed some light on that. I don't know, but that might be too optimistic again. If I could just say that actually, in I think it's 2017, Swedish environmentalists um, were doing that. They were going around and um, leaving little nasty, little notes, informative yeah. notes, you know, they were viewed as nasty on the SUVs and engaging in minor acts of vandalism. Yeah. What's stunning about it is there was just this incredible backlash. Oh, really? Yeah, this is what I understand, just yeah. reading about this. I don't read Swedish. Yeah. So, but I'm with you on that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's really, um, yeah. One yeah, more. I mean, it's, it's an interesting sort of, the debate about violence, um, and sort of this reminds me of one of the first year courses that I teach, and I give a lecture on violence and how we conceptualize it. And there does seem to be sort of, you know, people who have a very strong reaction to say the extinction rebellions, shutting down uh, the city of London or insulate Britain protesters gluing themselves to motorways. They seem to view this as sort of incredibly offensive and sort of disruptive and unjustifiable in a democratic state. But I just keep on thinking about the 4 billion people that guys mentioned who are going to be sort of experiencing extreme climate distress and, you know, knowingly and avoidably producing that sort of human rights deficit mm -hmm. would be sort of a plausible, plausibly violent action. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see how we have this different reaction to both. You know, uh, when it is a systemic form of violence, we tend to be apathetic, right? As Guy was saying, you know, uh, the implicit climate denialism. Uh, but when it's sort of a nasty note left on your SUV, people become very, very agitated about it. And it's sort of something that's interesting about human psychology there is that we can't see broader systemic forms of violence that we participate in, uh, but even mild uncivil language gets our backs up when it's directed at us personally, uh, which might be one of the reasons why there are some people who have a very vociferous reaction uh, to climate change politics. And I think, David, I think you're right. And, and, but from the perspective of the human mind, uh, I, I think that's not surprising. Uh, I mean, you see this, uh, you see this uh, in, in all areas of political uh, communication, uh, that, the, that the concrete, that the specific, um, that the rule of thumb uh, always works better than the abstract uh, and the systemic. And I, I think this is if, you know, I mean, this, this might also be too simple because oftentimes we, we can explain systemic violence or systemic pressures or systemic sort of issues uh, to, to people. But, you know, as a starting point, people want to see something specific. And, 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 and I think this is a very, very good point that you're making there, David. And I want to sort of move this to, to Will um, because uh, it also made me think of something that Will said earlier um, in terms of um, civil disobedience and when it is acceptable. And, uh, you know, that you mentioned some of these factors and you explained it to, uh, explained it to me back on five's uh, intro. And one of the things that he said was about fidelity to the law. 
not necessarily fidelity to every little letter of the law, uh, but fidelity to sort of the spirit of the law in uh, sort of in liberal uh, societies. And now, you know, putting all of this, meshing all of these thoughts together, my question in my mind to you would be, um, what can organizations like Extinction Rebellion and these forms of uh, civil disobedience that we were just talking about, that David mentioned, that Guy and uh, Will were also already talking about, what can Extinction Rebellion, for example, do, you know, to show that they do have fidelity to the law? Well, well they've been doing, I would say, the very old-fashioned thing, which um, may be problematic for other reasons, but they accept penalties, right? So if you, if you go and you look at their website, read their documents, or, or just look at what they're doing, they take that very seriously. They see, they seemed, many of them seem to see arrest as um, appropriate, as a way of well, of showing that they're willing to sacrifice something, that's crucial, they think. You know, this is a way of, and I think that is, there is something to be said for that. This is a way to communicate to other people. This, We're morally serious. We care about this. We're not just playing games. We're not criminals who are evading legal punishment. And therefore, we will accept penalty, you know, the penalties. So that's a very old-fashioned way, sort of conventional way of expressing respect for law. So I think Extinction Rebellion is, in a way, that's sort of the easy case. I mean, there are problems with this. That's been very controversial within the movement, if I understand. There are many people of color who said that's easy for white middle class folks to go and hang out in jail for a couple of days and so on. But for those of us who have not always had wonderful relationships with the police or with the state apparatus, we don't view this as necessarily as unproblematic as you do. Right. So, um, I mean, that, that's controversial, but that's how they're doing it. But I think there are other ways of doing it. And I don't think it's just a liberal viewpoint, and, and at least as far as I can tell, historically it hasn't been. So you have people like Gandhi, who I don't think was a liberal, or even Martin Luther King, who called for some pretty revolutionary transformations of the American order. He thought the American order was not just racist, but it was capitalist and militarist, and he was a socialist and an anti-militarist. So he thought you would, well, he thought you also would accept punishment as a way of showing respect for law, but as a way more specifically of anticipating the kind of legal order you wanna have, not the existing flawed racist legal order. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at different types of protests, you see different ways in which people try to do this. And I do, I do think this is, unless you're an anarchist, I'll just say this, I think in my view, this is important. Now, maybe if you're an anarchist and then we talk about it, right? Um, because it's not just, and you it depends on what your view of law is. If you see law as a necessary device that you and I have to live together, right? It's a way by which we live together in a community and make sure that there's at least a measure of freedom, equal freedom for everybody. That's what law ultimately should be about. You know, then showing respect for law is fundamental, it seems to me. One thing I would say about that is I agree with Bill that it can be effective in certain cases for people to be arrested and to have their day in court and make their case publicly but I think we shouldn't take the view that this is a moral requirement that people engaged in disobedience should have to fulfill I think it can be tactically useful in some cases but in some cases it's going to be asking far too much of people who are breaking the law so for example there was two women I forget their names who sabotaged the Dakota access pipeline and they then made themselves public and I think they faced really long prison terms that are just completely disproportionate to any property damage that they committed. Um, I can't remember the exact number but it's a lot of 
years in prison that they were facing mm-hmm. and where people are going to face that kind of recrimination I think trying to expect them to kind of hand themselves in I mean I could see a role for kind of anonymous forms of sabotage for example I don't think they wouldn't they would be wrong I think that that would be acceptable and I can see in other cases the value of what Extinction Rebellion are doing and I think it has actually worked pretty well in their favour um, in this case but I can definitely see other cases where people wouldn't want to be arrested. So so Guy Guy and I I think we disagree maybe in an interesting way on this right so um, I do think Guy is right a lot of this is a question of tactics but um, I guess my where maybe maybe I differ is I think if you want to communicate that we're in this together in the sense that this is a common political legal project on some level then I think some way of expressing respect for law has to happen. I, I think Guy is right that that doesn't necessarily have to mean turning yourself in. I think there are a lot of reasons why that is potentially actually counterproductive if one wants to show respect for the law. I mean, this is a point, it's uh, Peter Singer made this point a long time ago. He said, if you're, if you're in an authoritarian state and they're just gonna throw you in a dungeon and no one's ever gonna hear about you, how is that gonna contribute to some sense of living in a shared legal order. And this, by the way, was also Edward Snowden's view, I think. This is why he left the United States, you know? Um, I think, and what he did, however, is he made some very interesting public statements about why what he did in his view was consistent with both US and international law. So that's another way maybe in which one shows this respect for law. I think there are a lot, I mean, we. I, what I wanna say is I don't think we should reduce that very complicated normative aspiration, which I do think is crucial to one very common approach, which again, historically has been, you turn yourself in, you accept penalties. The guy's right, that's, that's a problem in many cases, but there are other ways of expressing respect for law. In some cases, I think that there's activists who, you know, they, they may be anarchists or they may have a kind of more radical yeah. critique of the status quo. And I think um, they shouldn't necessarily expect them to respect show respect for law i mean maybe we could expect them to articulate some kind of normative vision some set of demands some proposals that we can uh debate and you know think about rather than just being a kind of exercise in you know self-expression that we can't kind of intelligibly discern and again this brings me to a point that I do think is interesting about the climate movements is that they do have very specific demands the Extinction Rebellion has three very specific detailed Mm. demands there's even a group in Britain that Bill may not have heard of yet but they're called Insulate Britain and they carry out disruptive protests where they block motorways they have really detailed demands about the insulating social housing by 2025 and you know it's kind of very much like very kind of pragmatic goals that they're talking about and in that way it's very different from say Occupy Wall Street that said we're gonna you know I mean they did have demands linked to the movement but in a way it was sort of, we're gonna camp here and we're gonna have this radical democratic experiment and you know we kind of have people who are anarchists and people who are social democrats and we're kind of all opposed to the status quo but then some people made a virtue of there being no demands. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that these climate justice movements do have very specific demands. And if we, they have demands, we can debate whether the demands are good, whether they're useful. So maybe we should say, you know, you don't have to show respect for the law, but you should 
you should have a propositional politics of some sort that we can kind of uh, debate publicly. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's just a, not an idea. That does speak, if I could just add something to that, it speaks to another issue, which I think is out there. I mean, with historically, the idea has been these protests should exemplify or symbolize the injustice at hand. And uh, the blocking of roadways, that, that seems to me to have become, I have very, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about this. So maybe we all do, maybe, maybe not, maybe you don't, but uh, it's become a sort of generic protest and it does seem to really irritate people in a way which doesn't necessarily maybe raise the sorts of questions that we want to raise, you know? This is just, I, so this is where I think things kind of run out in terms of political theory or philosophy, and it's really a question of political tactics. I mean, the, the philosopher or political theorist point would be to say what I said a moment ago, which is ideally your protest speaks directly to the injustice at hand. And one thing that worries me a little bit, and I think it's not just the climate justice movement, we're seeing this a lot of movements, you know, they're just these kind of general things people do, and the rest of us don't get them sometimes, you know? I mean, I've seen this, even people very politically sympathetic. So Black Lives Matter, um, for example, they blockaded access to downtown Chicago at some point during shopping season. And I just, you know, and they, what they said was no business as usual, right? And we're, we have to talk about systemic racism, but I don't think people were able to make that connection. I'll just say this, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think there was enough thoughtfulness about strategy in terms of how can we get these people who don't want to think about racism to think about it? I completely understand that. And of course, a lot of the people who are driving are just driving to their minimum yeah. wage jobs or, you know, trying to get home to look after their kids. And they're all, that is a big part of it. And ideally, they would be um, focusing on, you know, the big people flying in their private jets um, who are a bit harder to reach. But um, I mean, I, I, mean I, I sort of was attached to the idea that actually what that environmental activists should be doing is they should be targeting the fossil fuel companies and shutting mm-hmm. them down and targeting the coal mines. And that is also good, but it's also true, unfortunately, those actions tend not to be as reported as much in the media. But I mean, that's not to say that they aren't worthwhile and maybe they do have sort of important ramifications. Again, this is kind of a question of kind of tactics, isn't it really? But yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's definitely a normative dimension to it when we think about the costs. And one of the sort of problems that I've had with the rhetoric around climate change over the past 15 years is that it does often reduce it down to, you know, well, you should be recycling more. You should be mm-hmm. sort of getting a low emission car, these sorts of things that are individual choices. But if you look at where, you know, the major contributions from CO2 come from, they come from major industries, Yeah, uh, you know, private corporations who are running major steel plants or coal mines, uh, which we are ultimately the end consumers of, definitely seem to have managed to successfully evade blame uh, when it comes to the climate crisis. And perhaps, you know, from a a normative point of view, we can say, yeah, you know, these are the agents that should be bearing the cost, people who are shareholders in, uh, you know, ExxonMobil are people who seem to be a more likely target than someone who is, you know, as you said, driving to their minimum wage job in Chicago. Uh, they don't feel like they're benefiting from, uh, you know, the fossil fuel yeah. industry. They feel pressed every day. Uh, so putting extra hurt on them seems both tactically un- ineffective, but also normatively, there seems to be something wrong uh, with putting the, mm-hmm. the burden on those people. Uh, so there is sort of this confluence of tactics and, and, and ethics mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that yeah. is really interesting on that. And uh, sort of one of the things that I'd sort of branch off to say is that I find it 
there's a really interesting dynamic relationship between sort of more militant forms of protest and more acceptable forms of civil disobedience. And uh, what I have in mind is, sort of, I just pulled it off my shelf, is uh, Charles Cobb's book, uh, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, which mm -hmm. is about uh, the role of uh, people in the civil rights movement actually arming themselves, because we like mm -hmm. to think of it as being, you know, driven by sort of peaceful protests in places like Birmingham. But in fact, there was this sort of threat that if civil rights demands weren't met, there would be sort of political violence from uh, Black people in the United States. And you mm -hmm. see a parallel with this in, uh, in apartheid South Africa, where there was a very large nonviolent movement uh, with the ANC, but the ANC also had an armed wing. And one of the things that brought the apartheid government to the table was a fear of civil war uh, with a well-armed uh, people's spear, as they were called. Uh, so there is this sort of very interesting relationship that we can't really pull apart between nonviolent civil protest and the threat, at least, of more militant action. And I'm wondering, you know, in a sort of reaction to Cobb's book, you know, perhaps more people should be thinking that uh, the nonviolent stuff, well, it might not get you killed in relation to climate change, but it might get your grandchildren killed uh, because, you know, climate change is going to affect more than just uh, uh, people in remote parts of the world. It will start affecting places in Europe and the United States, Canada, Australia, certainly. So, yeah, I mean, this is sort of something that I've been thinking about is this tension uh, or this interrelationship that gets pulled apart a little too quickly, I think, in our normative analysis. And is that also one way in which climate change is distinct from other forms of injustice? Uh, that's something that both Guy and uh, William agreed on. Uh, and I think David's point hinted a little bit at that because other forms of injustice um, uh, we're not as sort of uh, mortally dangerous uh, to, uh, to to the entire global sort of community or the the, the other the entire planet. Um, uh, they had uh, important repercussions. I'm not trying to downplay this uh, in any form or fashion, but those were always sort of distinct uh, repercussions for different groups. You know, African Americans in the U.S. obviously had. Uh, you know, good reasons to, uh, to 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 engage in the civil rights movements and to continue to engage in the demands for um, for 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 civil rights and and lots of other political demands on all fronts. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, um, it's it's their group um, that they sort of um, that they advertise change for, um, and, and also of course uh, that contributes to to sort of justice as a. Um, as a systemic uh, sort of property. And, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to downplay this in any form or fashion, but uh, my hunch is that maybe the climate crisis is distinct from this and other forms of injustice because it has this repercussions for everyone, regardless of which group you belong to, obviously with degradations in severity, um, you know, that's, we already mentioned that. Um, so long story short, uh, is that why climate change is distinct from other forms of injustice, Sky? I wouldn't necessarily say so, because when you think about the existential threat, that was also true of the nuclear threat. So the anti-nuclear protest movement was confronting an existential threat. And, you know, that was really influential when it came to, say, Habermas and his thinking about civil disobedience and other people who've written about it, Ronald Dawkin, liberal thinkers on civil disobedience. So some of the thinking on civil disobedience was shaped by that movement. I think when I was thinking about its distinctiveness, and then another aspect you might think, I mean, just for the thought is that you might think well okay well it's like a structural injustice where it's not obvious that my contribution is negatively impacting people in the way that kind of uh, sweatshops is a kind of structural injustice the supply chains and the global economic order and 
stuff that David's written about as a structural injustice. But to me, partly it's this kind of temporal dimension as well, and that kind of what we're doing now is going to have an impact in 20 to 40 years time. It's very hard for me, I guess for other people as well, to kind of psychologically make sense of that aspect of it in that it's going to have repercussions in down. And then you kind of think, well, it's going to have these repercussions, but maybe something will happen between now and 40 years that will make it better. There's this kind of a lot of kind of calculations mentally that are going on in thinking about the relationship between cause and effect. So for me, that's partly what makes it difficult when it comes to think about it. I, I don't know what others thought. I like that a lot. I think that's right on. I, al I also agree. I mean, there have been other existential threats. Um, the nuclear threat is still an existential threat in my view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love to read these books about our ancient ancestors. Uh, and apparently at one point, Homo sapiens, our numbers were reduced to maybe a couple of hundred in Africa. Or, I mean, it's yeah. just astounding. I think it was 10,000 people at one point in the Ice yeah, Age. Yeah. You know. So we're here maybe because we lucked out, you know. Yeah. Um, so there have been other, there probably were other existential threats we don't even want to know about, right? So, um, but yeah, the, the issue is really here. What kind of emergency is this? And, and this, I think, speaks directly to Guy's point. I mean, one distinction I've come across, which I think is useful, is um, the climate emergency is both acute. So it's acute in the sense that we have, you know, intensified extreme weather events, uh, tornadoes, where, where I live, just, you know, they're happening much more frequently, they're devastating. Uh, you know, and there, so, so there's more going on there, uh, but it is acute, you know, in a very literal sense of the term. And in a way that's almost somewhat old fashioned because we already have emergency political and legal mechanisms to deal with those things, you know. So there are these the United States natural disaster laws that go into effect, you know. Um, so that's part of the story. That's the more familiar part. I think when people talk about climate change, for better or worse, they are thinking about that. And unfortunately, I think some of them are saying, okay, so we might have more tornadoes or we might have more hurricanes. Um, but, you know, I'm going to make my, I'll, I'll survive somehow. I mean, this worries me, but I think you see that kind of that's crackpot realism, it seems to me. Uh, the other aspect of the emergency is, is, you could say it's chronic, and it's exactly what Guy was talking about, right? So it's, it's systemic, it's unfolding, it's long-term, and it's accelerating also. Um, and that's what's so scary, of course, because by the time you know, we start seeing truly devastating consequences, it's maybe too late for us to do something about it. So I, I do think that is distinct. And that's also why clearly politically it's so difficult to get our hands around it and to, to, see, to get people to make the connections between driving their SUVs and what could happen in 20 years. You know? So, and of course the acute aspect goes together with the chronic aspect, but um, the chronic aspect really is in some ways the more, more disturbing part of it, I think, or more difficult part of it. And, and yes, more disturbing as well. Absolutely. I think the intergenerational element of climate justice is the most challenging aspect of it, because you know, we're not just talking about you know, our children or our grandchildren. These are sort of, you know, could be you know, a couple of hundred years from now, people will be living in a world that has been radically altered by the actions we're taking right now. And that is, you know, like Constantine was saying, psychologically hard for us to sort of get our hands on. But it's also, I think, quite intellectually difficult for philosophers to get our hands on political philosophers to think about intergenerational issues, because there's a huge confluence of other issues, right? You know, global inequality, right? Uh, do we stop 
or mitigate climate change by, you know, preventing people from having adequate economic growth to sustain a, a modicly, modicum of decency in their lives. You know, these are sort of very difficult issues to grapple with. And certainly when I do climate justice with my students, they often have this concern about sort of people living in the bottom decile of humanity right now being even more profoundly harmed by efforts to stop climate change. And then it's sort of an interesting question about, you know, where do the burdens go? Who chooses, you know, where the burdens are distributed? You know, these are questions, primary questions of justice, but we don't seem to have the tools to get to a good answer, uh, at least perhaps not right now. But if there's any young political philosophers out there listening to us, you know, there's a PhD topic for you. Well, I don't know whether I'm going to glue my face to the motorway, but I might be lacing up my marching boots. The climate crisis isn't going anywhere, and we're running out of time. But we still do have time to thank our guests, Bill Scheuermann and Guy Atchison. You can follow us on Twitter at TheCityPolitics, K underscore Bossing, and of course, at GD Blunt. One day that delicious blue tick will be mine, and my life will have meaning. This has been the City Politics Podcast. The official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. Big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Stay tuned for more City Politics podcasts. We're back, baby.